I think it's true, and I think it's nature and probably even more so the nature nurture. Taste is really an aesthetic taste. I think it has a lot to do with how you're raised and what you're exposed to. Definitely. I, w- I would never move into a subdivision. Like, But some people are like, hey, it's a good house. It's close to the highway. I can get to work. It's a good school system. Mm-hmm. Whatever. I, you know, it's got it's got central air. It's got, like, dimmer light switches. It's got a movie theater room. It's got, like, a group pool that all the other people who live here go to. But I would rather live in, like, a farmhouse that's a piece of shit in the middle of nowhere, I think. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome back to Landline Podcast. Thanks for stopping in. Good to talk to you again. So today we've got a great little podcast for you with my friend Quill the Flower Queen, the head gardener at a historic garden in northern New Jersey called Meadowburn on the Pennsylvania and New York border in the Hudson River Valley Extended. We talk about gardening, we talk about living on a farm versus living in the city, the discussion of where to live that's haunting us all. And Quill gives us the ups, the downs, the all-arounds, not to mention what it's like to date in the country or lack thereof, and, um, you know, a little chit-chat, just a relaxing podcast to be enjoyed while gardening yourself, while making strawberry jam, while driving down to your vacation spot in horrible traffic, while picking up the house, vacuuming, doing the laundry, while barbecuing, making ribs all day, while going to the beer store. All these things are a good time for Landline Podcast. We're just a little friend in your ear. Get you to connect back to times of yore when podcasts were made of flip phones. I don't know. Anyways, enjoy the show. Hopefully everyone's enjoying the summertime. Remember, tell a friend about Landline. Spread the word. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Get them on board. Call the landline, 617-744-1895. Leave a message. Upcoming pods with Giles, old cocktail hour with Giles. Saul versus Alex, another movie annex. And we are warming up for another Two Guys, One Cup with Tim, the winemaker of Napa. I think we're going to do some canned wine. End of this show, we've got a great story about the worst-case scenario of an interaction with a bona fide hippie. Way worse than B.O., So anyways, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Landline Podcast, SoundCloud, iTunes, talkforliving.com. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the show. Landline. Alex, hey, what's up? Hey. I think I just tried calling the wrong number a few times. Did anybody answer? (laughs) No one answered. I got a voicemail and I hung up. Who was it? I don't know. I just went to that lady's place, like the machine lady. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? I'm good. It's hot here. It's like 95 degrees. No, maybe it's not, but I've just been driving around all day looking for dog land. So um, a little summer traffic in Boston, it can get to you a little bit, but I'm, I'm Yeah, re- I bet. I'm relaxing. 95. Yikes. No, I just it's... Got, um, 
a package delivered to me that's like the like as long and tall as I am. What do you think it All is? Right. Uh, I think it's um drip line. Whoa. Are you gonna yeah. are you and you have to install it in the garden? All right, well, Landline listeners, we have Quill the Flower Queen on the Landline today. It's our first time together, and we're going to have a great one. Um, Quill is a – like, do you call yourself a gardener when, when people come up to you and ask you what you do? What do you call yourself? Because gardener really makes you think of, like, the 1950s and someone in, like, all-white clothing. <laughs> um, it kind of depends on who is coming up to talk to me and how much I actually want to explain. So if someone just comes up randomly, yeah, I say gardener. Um, but, I mean, the other tight or, like, kind of professional terms would be, um, like, garden preservationist or horticulturalist, um, historic horticulturalist. But gardener is good. But who do you say historic horticulturalist to? Like, how talk about profiling? Like, who do you drop that bomb on? <laughs> uh, someone who is probably not in garden preservation themselves, but who I think would be fun to talk more about the history of gardening with. So, so tell us about that. Like, tell us where you work and tell us, like, why are gardens preserved and what is the history of gardening? I mean, obviously, you're not like a – well, maybe you are a garden historian. What do you know about it all? Well, I guess I'm not like a garden historian. I'm a garden historian in the sense that I'm a historian for Meadowburn. Um, but I think gardens are preserved – I mean, it really depends on the kind of garden, whether it's preserved for um, – usually it's, like, the creator, the designer, the kind of garden it is or – you know, the person who owned it, um, if there's cultural or historic significance. Um, but what was the other question? Well, like, what, like, why are gardens preserved? Like, why do you, is it just something to, that people have, like, taken a liking to? Like, do you know what the impetus behind it is? Obviously, I'm not for all gardens turning into parking lots. I'm just interested as to, like, how someone makes a decision that a garden needs to be preserved. Hmm. Well, so in the case of Meadowburn, I think gardens um, tell a lot about cultural values about a certain time in history and um, also about industry and wealth and, and social class. I mean, there's a lot that, like, is kind of written in the landscape, I'd say. Um, so with the case of Meadowburn, why its significant is because of its creator, for example, um, who uh, was incredibly influential, and it was her, it was the only garden, well, not the only garden she created, but it was her own personal garden, and um, it was a garden that influenced, like, thousands of other home gardens in the country. So, um, I think... You know, the value of preserving it is for people to kind of learn about what the design was in that time, what it meant at that time, um, and then kind of looking at potentially, I don't know, you could use, like, look at Meadowburn in the landscape uh, and um, maybe find how it influenced other gardens thereafter. I mean, it's like, it's just interesting. You think about it like garden and park are two words where 
someone can say, look at my garden. It's like on the outside of their fire escape in New York City. And then you uh-huh. think of like the gardens at like Kensington Palace or something like that. Yeah. And it's like this massive, you know, probably acres upon acres. And it's like a, it's almost like a science lab meets like a museum meets a historical show of wealth like you said and then you know park is almost the same way there's like a park where it's a basketball court and there's a park where it's the like tier garden in berlin so it's just it's fascinating like what gardens have become and you think of like garden clubs i wonder in the olden days how they all communicated about gardens like let's say you're a garden historian in new jersey like the one you work at Mm -hmm. and then like how are you it's not like you're instagramming your garden so like what are you (laughs) well like how are other rich white ladies you know 50 miles away knowing about you mrs ely was the woman who created the gardens that i work at um and i'm just using it as an example because it's what i know very well um but in her case you know they would have like people out for the weekend in the summer people out for a week at a time you know other fancy people coming from all over um the region to visit in like by train or by carriage and then word just gets out about Mrs. Ely's garden and then people start writing her letters asking for advice and so I think a lot of that sharing of of like gardening knowledge happens via letters Mm. um but one of the reasons that Ely is significant is because she actually because of all this letter writing she put um her experience down in a book and then that was really one of the early books that kind of influenced well and then you know became bestseller and sold tens and tens of thousands of copies and then so that was a vehicle to share gardening knowledge and that was how a lot of people found out about Meadowburn and then she started publishing in the Smithsonian and not the Smithsonian I'm sorry Scribner's and other like ladies home journal and um and whatnot and then other people start writing about it and the newspapers start writing about it so it's just kind of like you know snail mail so that i'll lay off the history in one more question but i just wonder so like not from like a layman's point of view but from your point of view as a you know a horticultural horticulturalist to the stars um do you when you walk around doing work there because you're the gardener like what parts are you super impressed about and then what parts are you like eh like this i've seen better at other gardens like what is what was this woman's like specialty like what are what are you so amazed by in this garden um it's i think what i'm really enchanted by is that you get a sense in the layout of the gardens and her design like she she designed all these gardens herself she didn't hire a landscape architect Everything was very much created by her and with the help of a team of gardeners, of course. But um, I think what's most impressive is her sensitivity of the landscape and the setting and, you know, topography and, um, you know, what sort of plants feel appropriate in the landscape and then what sorts of plants feel appropriate or plants and design feel appropriate around an old colonial house. But really, it's like how the garden is kind of um, interlaced in Meadowburn's landscape. So it's, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's um, a big old farm with hundreds of um, fields or acres of fields and woodlands and a river that snakes through it. So 
Um, there's a lot of really natural beauty, and the way she built the gardens within that landscape and the connections of the formal gardens to the exterior um, agricultural land, I think, is really special. And I think that it's only something that could be achieved in the way that she did it by someone who had a really incredibly intimate connection with the gardens throughout, like, throughout the course of years and also seeing like the changes throughout the day and the changes of the light and um so it's very it has like this really personal feel to it because of that it's kind of amazing it's like there's so many things in life that are like that you think about mcmansions just getting thrown up versus someone whether it's even building a modern house that has like all of these specific uh you know acknowledgements to the place where it's being built I wonder, like, do you think people are just, like, born with the ability, like, taste? It's just, it's funny to me. You think about, like, I, w- I would never move into a subdivision. And, like, but some people are like, hey, it's a good house. It's close to the highway. I can get to work. It's a good school system. Mm-hmm. Whatever. I, you know, it's got, it's got central air. It's got, like, dimmer light switches. It's got a movie theater room. It's got, like, a group pool that all the other people who live here go to. But I would rather live in, like, a farmhouse that's a piece of shit in the middle of nowhere, I think. Um, Totally. So I just wonder whether, like, this woman's ability to do a good garden. I wish we we had, like, a journalist standpoint on some gaudy, disgusting new money garden that we could compare it it to in, like, the 1800s. But um, I wonder why people do that. I guess some people just – I think it has to do with like being patient and taking the time and really being aware of what's around you. I think some people mm-hmm. are just never aware of what's around them. I think it's true. And I think it's nature and probably even more so the nature nurture. And cause I think there are people that are just like born genetically with stronger senses and, and, and abilities, you know, probably for like, and composition and like visual composition and visual aesthetics whereas other people's strong suits are more maybe in you know math or something I don't know but I think so it's that's like it would be the nature part but then I think it like taste is really an aesthetic taste I think has a lot to do with how you're raised and what you're exposed to definitely yeah. And what you think is good. I mean, that's the other thing, though. It's subjective, I guess, right? I don't know. Is taste subjective? Yeah. I feel like taste isn't subjective. <laughs> I feel like Sometimes I know good taste not. when I see it. Yeah, yeah. I feel that, that too. <laughs> I think everyone thinks that. Or maybe the people... I wonder if we would agree on our good taste, though. Maybe we disagree. Well, my everything in my life is all around authenticity. It's like if it's authentic mm-hmm. to itself, then... And <laughs> you you know, you could have something that's brand new. You could have something that's 300 years old. Both can be tasteless. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I think kind of like... I guess that's maybe what feng shui means, right? It's kind of like... I don't know. What does feng shui mean? It means balance? <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't tell you. You went to college, right? You went to Colorado College? Mm-hmm. And then you, like, worked in the – did you immediately start working, like, in the gardens? Were you always a garden person? I know you grew up in, with, with a lot of animals and probably a garden, but tell me why you decided to garden. Yeah. Um, I decided to garden because there's nothing I love to do more and I was always told that if I followed a career that I was passionate about, then I'd be happy. 
Now, the man who told me that was my father, and he didn't think I would end up being a gardener. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think he was thinking, like, landscape architect. But, um, yeah, I like having my hands in the dirt. I just have always loved to garden um, for as long as I can remember, and that's probably because I spent a lot of time in my mom's garden. Um, but, yeah, then in college, I kind of actually, like, high school really got super into botany and then college just like kind of fell into um, plant sciences and um, realized that there was professions in um, the area of what I loved most. So I knew pretty early on that I was going to be on like the horticulture track. Um, after college, I did like some internships, but then I got Oh, like I guess like a year after college or so, I got distracted and started baking. I kind of just like fell into baking. So I did that for a few years, um, almost kind of got stuck in it for a while. But then oh, it was probably just like some beautiful summer that I realized I didn't want to just be like stuck in front of a hot oven and it was killing my social life because I had to get up you know, like four o'clock in the morning and, um, yeah, just went back to horticulture then. And, uh, it's, I don't think I'd ever change at this point. And what's the, there's so many people our age and younger getting written about in whatever New York magazine, New Yorker, New York times you read, um, Mm -hmm. that are farming. Right. And farming is yeah. also basic. It's agriculture. It's horticultural. It's it's mm-hmm. you're, you're getting a different result, but you're doing a lot of the same things, I assume. So what makes it just dawn on me that no none of these horticulturalists are getting the same kind of press. Um, what kind of like what made you did you ever want to do food or was it always like about is it about beauty or why do you decide one over the other? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, I think of it like actually quite different than farming too and I think farming is like yeah farming is to like produce a crop right and I guess we're kind of doing that with our flower farming but on kind of a different scale um and some people call like when they call me a farmer I have to correct them because I don't think of myself really as a farmer um but uh, the question was, just okay. like, why, did you ever want to make food? Oh, um, no, you know, I like to have a vegetable garden, like a small manageable vegetable garden for like my, myself and my people and, and the people around me, but I'm not really interested in just mass producing food. I think really my interest comes in to creating space creating space that people live within and experience and enjoy and can, um, you know, kind of inspire them create creatively or even just be a setting for their own creative work. Like, that's what makes me really excited. Um, and I also just, like, I love, yeah, I guess, like, gardening for me is my um, medium for, like, artistic expression as well so yeah i think of it very different from from farming and yeah never really interested in that like mass production side of of it i guess it shows you how stupid i am too because i was thinking of flower production as gardening but gardening have has things that stay there for you know 
tens or hundreds of years that never never are like harvested and turned over so there's a i wasn't even thinking of the gardens stupid yeah well no, no that's not stupid at all like because in at meadowburn you know we have like a vast picking garden and we actually do grow a lot of things just for production so i'm you know we're kind of doing both here but we're doing it more on like a traditional like estate gardens scale um which you know back a hundred years ago this farm was producing almost everything it needed to like self-sustain as far as food and then and then flowers for the house so um so you're not totally off track there so can people make money in flowers like for all those people who have thought about opening a you know hair salon or a food cart or a flower shop or a uh i don't know what else do they think to open farm stand cheesery what's Mm -hmm. the like do you think is there money in flowers or do you have to be like a giant operation in israel or holland because isn't that where like 90 percent of the flowers in the world come from yeah and i think a lot from like south america too um yeah you can totally make money in flowers and i think you know especially right now there's this whole movement the slow flower movement um, that I think we might have talked about, and it's kind of just like the same thing. It's like this, the slow food movement, and it's all about getting locally sourced in-season flowers, and there's a lot of momentum behind that movement, a lot of marketing, and a lot of people are getting into it, and because of that marketing, there's, you know, actually a market for these locally grown flowers, and um, you can make money. I think I ran, I read some that that like per acre a well-marketed flower operation can is like the second uh, I'm gonna forget the statistic but like second to marijuana in the amount of value you can get from one acre there it is king weed coming back to rear its ugly it's it's beautiful <laughs> it's beautiful head yeah uh, so totally, there's totally money. I mean, if there's, if there's continues to be a market, which right now, you know, around urban hubs like New York City, like for sure, you can definitely make money on flowers. It all depends on, I guess, the efficiency of your production and ability to market well. So flowers have gone on my nerves before with, obviously, you've heard of 1-800-Flowers.com. Yeah. Um, and so I listen to a lot of sports radio just because it's sort of my comfort blanket when I'm driving around in the car or whatever. It's just a like a drone of things that are it's apolitical, so it's pretty easy to stay topical on. And the a lot of the radio shows or even podcasts are sponsored by one eight hundred flowers dot com and it's always like order a dozen roses for your sweetheart or your mom or whatever and a teddy bear and some chocolate and get them FedEx overnight, and it's like they run these like heavy-duty advertising campaigns for Mother's Day, for mm-hmm. Valentine's Day, for Easter, whatever. They come up with all this stuff. And then you just think about the whole like infrastructure behind it. It's like clearly like GMO flowers growing in some like third-world country that are then probably like machine clipped and processed by people who are like, you know, barely lit- alive. I mean, I don't want maybe maybe they're doing yeah. great. Maybe they're having a great time. And then shipped by a diesel truck and then put on a plane and then shipped mm-hmm. around a, on a plane. Like, think about not only the – forget about the carbon footprint, the, the, just the, the cost of all that fuel. And somehow they still make it uh, – making a huge profit. Um, yeah. 
And could there talk about tasteless? Could there be anything so tasteless as out of season, like half-hearted GMO roses that haven't even opened and don't even look like what roses look like in the wild, delivered by like the FedEx guy? I don't know. I, I just yeah, get- no, you're right. There's nothing, nothing good about that scenario. They don't even smell good, and. You know, the only reason it's profitable is because there's, you know, a bunch of young women in Ecuador, you know, getting paid nothing to subject themselves to, like, ridiculous amounts of chemicals every day in a rose greenhouse. So. And then, you know, served with a corn syrup chocolate bar owned by an international <laughs> conglomerate and, like, a teddy bear that was made in Indonesia. And it's like, happy Mother's Day, Mom. Yeah. So I just – I think – to me, the reason I asked you, so we were together at Meadowburn, and the reason I asked you about seasonal flowers and why you mentioned it just now, to me, especially when you think of, like, Thanksgiving. So our family, and the f- we do, let's say, four um, centerpieces at our family. Well, there'll be a Christmas mm-hmm. one, of course. My sister and, and my wife usually put it together, and it's like we have a Thanksgiving one sometimes, a Christmas one maybe an Easter one. And like, if there's a big family holiday, like 4th of July, where it's just fun, we have one. Right. So, but one of the beautiful things is like the Thanksgiving centerpiece of seasonal November wildflowers and like those incredible fall colors that you remember are like reflective of why they dye yams, the color orange that they do and why like they make, (laughs) you know, why they fill turkeys with salt in order to have a certain color and why you put like brown shit to, in your gravy to turn it brown it's like it's the colors of the season that are actually growing on earth at that time yeah totally and it, it really if it's like you everyone want it's trying to be like a celebrity everyone's trying to be like with the hip crowd and do what everyone does well like the hippest thing you can do is like reflect the colors of the earth at the time that you're celebrating you know so true yeah that's good taste that's good yeah. taste <laughs> Yeah. So, so the one holiday that, like, seems like we're just totally out of place as far as, like, seasonality in our climate is Valentine's Day because there's no flowers blooming in February that aren't being grown in a greenhouse. And um, But that's also, like, a pretty cool – like, I feel like that holiday in general was, like, blown up because of, like, the commercial value of it. Well, like, like, this is one of the beauties that you learn at business school. And, and, you know, people will think I'm sort of a conspiracy guy. Or when people hear this kind of stuff, they, they like, let it go over, over their shoulder or whatever. And they're like, oh, whatever. That's just one point of view. And maybe it is. But think about it. When is Valentine's Day? Valentine's Day is the second week in February. What happens for retailers for all of January and February? They don't sell anything because it's just been Christmas. It's just been New Year's. Everyone bought the most shit possible. And I guarantee if you do some business history and look into why Valentine's Day has become a commercial thing, it's a way for them to start paying their rent again. Like, you know, January is when all the retail shops in the country close down if they realize they're not going to be able to make it through another winter season until they get someplace. Mm -hmm. And if you like what is between Christmas and Easter in terms of any reason to buy anything on our calendar? And so I think really that's why Valentine's Day is what it is. That's why, you know, they sell just they turn everything red. But maybe that's, you know, (laughs) nothing that anybody hasn't thought of before. But yeah, no, I think you're. I think that's totally correct. 
So what would you do? So so tell us then. Let's come up with a solution. Let's let's be a solution minded podcast here. What can we What can we give our beloved at Valentine's Day? Like, hmm, it doesn't have to be a flower. Or it doesn't have to be a flower. Well, let's think of could we give them some foliage at least? Oh yeah, yeah, and you know it totally depends on where you live. But foliage is a great idea. I mean, I think of Seattle these days. There's tons of things blooming and. February, but um, all right. Well, there's a lot of the country that's not New Jersey, New York, and New England. So yeah, um, but in New Jersey and New York, what should someone give give their beloved that's picked from the garden? I don't know. Or Definitely like, are there indoor? Forward. Are there any? Do you think there's indoor organic rose greenhouses? I mean, let's get rid of the rose though. Let's figure out another. Yeah, I think way we to gotta do skip the roses. God, um, oh, it really good. That's like kind of a stumper. Do you think like well you could start with pine boughs? I guess it's kind of Christmassy, but definitely um, do a pine bough or maybe just like a branch. How about just a pretty branch? And it can even be naked. Wow, a naked pretty branch. A naked branch. And you went to you went to like a gardener's masters program, and you, that's what you uh-huh. came up with. <laughs> I think that would be totally hot, and especially like yeah, yeah, okay. I think that's good. Okay. All right. Or you could even you could take like a dead branch and like spray paint it hot pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Naked dead branch. One of the things I mentioned to you before we started potting um, was how I think that there is this, and and it definitely I will project onto the listeners because I feel this way. There is this struggle between our generation, you know, let's say twenty five to thirty five year olds plus on either side about whether to live in like the hot busy not hot temperature wise although sometimes it is the exciting busy city um Mm -hmm. with like a cool job and the money to get some good clothes and good food brought in from local farms and good looking people and you know a general just um nice buffet of intellectualism going on around you um, Mm -hmm. with a lot of uh, intellectual stimuli. And then there's the whole other back to the land or even just live out in the country, settle down thing, um, which is equally as fun. I mean, if we think about all those trips to the country or trips to the beach or trips to wherever you go and you go on a little weekend trip to the cabin where you get to like have fun at the local shitty grocery store and stock up on beer and play cards, play board games, play charades, sit out on the porch, like take way too long to cook a delicious meal, decorate the table, go on walks, go on swims. And people really envy that lifestyle. And you're one of the people who's like really, really, really been doing that lifestyle for three years. Um, A lot of times like by yourself, right? I mean, do other people live, do coworkers live with you? Um, there are, uh, right now during like the growing season, um, I have an assistant and an intern that live on the property in the farmhouse, but yeah, most, I mean, most of this past year, um, even most of last summer, I was like the only person actually like a hundred percent of the time, well, not totally a hundred percent of the time, but that was like the only real resident on like 600 acres. <laughs> so what's it like? Like That's there's got to be crazy. There's got to be amazing elements and there's got to be days where you're just like fuck this right now. Totally. Yeah. Um so the times when I feel like not excited about it is pretty much when the garden isn't like banging. So 
from about November to the end of April. It seems like pretty isolated and like I'm not being fulfilled out here. Um, and well, and I should say like I'm I'm kind of I've always been like a city girl and a farm girl. Like had one foot in each because I was raised in the city, um, but love the country and love being outside and I've spent, you know, my whole life a lot of time at farms. But, um, yeah, in the winter, it's, like, pretty dull. And then I think, what the fuck am I doing here? You know, the best years of my life, like, just, like, withering away in the countryside. But as soon as May hits, it's just, like, I'm so, like, just excited to see, like, the world wake up and... I'm, like, really engaged in what I'm doing, and I find that, you know, my work here is challenging for me in various ways. Um, You know, it's, like, a good – it's been a really good opportunity for me professionally, and I feel really engaged with, like, my professional community because of the work that I'm doing here. And so it's intellectually stimulating for me, even if I'm, you know, here working by myself. It's, like, I feel fulfilled by it. and then I just, you know, like I said, like I do garden. I don't, there's nothing in the world I love more than gardening. And I have an amazing place to garden in. And I have a lot of um, creative autonomy. So, yeah. And then the other great thing during the season is um, all my buddies from the city want to come visit. And that's kind of what um, I think keeps me like socially fulfilled is just that I have this place this gorgeous gorgeous place um that people want to come out and experience and it's really fun for me to be able to share it so this time here I feel like I live in paradise and it doesn't get much better (laughs) and what do you do when you go to the city does it take you a while to let's just say you went I mean why would you ever go to the city now until let's say November but (laughs) <laughs> if you were going to go to the city, like, is it, do you have like a weird freak out at first when you get there and there's just so many people? Like, where are you vis a vis humans? Because it might just be me, but I'll drive around doing this job where I'm just driving through the suburbs. And sometimes I'll be like, this is so beautiful yeah. and fun and I'm just out on my own. And then sometimes I'm like, I just got to get away from all these people. Like, there's a whole earth out there, there's whole swaths of this country where you could live. And really be one with the earth, but I mean it's lonely and it's hard to do. Um, but what happens when you go like reintegrate with people? Are you just right back into it? <laughs> just like super awkward. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Are you? That's I would a great be. Great question. I would uh, be. When I reintegrate with people, you know what? I think um, <sighs> that's a great question. When I spent a lot of time out in the country, I feel like generally like pretty relaxed socially because I'm just like content and fulfilled and I think that's when I'm like can uh probably I'm probably more friendly and outgoing with strangers but I get you know when I come into New York City and just like the pace of everything I think I try to like I definitely like start walking fast and like being annoyed by the person who stands in the middle of the escalator. And I think it's mostly just because I want to, like, get out get out of it so quickly. <laughs> but also, like, two days in the city, is it, like, gives me the little urban dose that I need, and I can be there and buzz around with everyone and um, 
see a lot of people watching and then yeah pretty excited to get get out of it that's for sure um i think huh does it make me a more awkward person there was a time like two years ago where my mom and my sister picked me up at the airport in december like right before Christmas and I think I had been at Meadowburn for like three weeks by myself just winterizing the garden and I probably hadn't talked to a human <laughs> in about three weeks wow. until my mom and my sister came picked me up I mean other than just like like transactions at the airport or something um <laughs> I just remember like like feeling like so ridiculous like kind of like I couldn't communicate with them I was like stumbling over my words and I just got like I just couldn't help but just like laugh about it and I remember just like feeling yeah uh pretty crazy I feel I feel crazy in situations like that like I'll get so excited to see for instance Anna after she's been away for a long time and then like when she gets back all of a sudden I'm realizing I've gotten better at identifying it that uh, I'm mad because I'm not the only one in the house anymore. <laughs> uh, because you really like, you don't even have to have the, you don't even have to have the conversation about who's going to do the dishes or you don't even have to think about whether or not the other person is worried about the fact that your dirty socks are on the floor in the living room. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'll just clean. I, I've got that on my mental schedule to clean up before she gets back. And that's all I need to do. So, <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think it's I, I think it's an interesting to expand a little bit on what you said. I think it's an interesting conundrum that a lot of my friends are having, which is like the where to live question. Yeah. And um, I think so many people in our generation are not buying homes because they're mm -hmm. too expensive. And so between that and between the convenience of air travel and between the convenience of communicating with the people that you f say you're closest with on the Internet and on phones – it can you can really leave your options open for a long, long time, you know, to settle down. Like so many yeah. of my friends haven't yet picked the place that they're going to live in perpetuity. And I feel like in our parents generation at this point in time, sure, a job might move somebody or you would be moved. But you live where you lived and you weren't talking about where else you were going to live. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Um, so like when people come up and visit, do they all say we should move to the country and does that become annoying or are they just kind of enjoying it for what it is? No, yeah, most people that come up that are like city dwellers, uh, it has that effect on them and a lot. And so, yeah, often people come up and then decide they want to buy a little farmhouse in Warwick and... um live the country dream no one who said it has done it i have like got probably like at least six people who've like come up and and been sure they were gonna move to the country but then you go back to the city and you get sucked into the city thing and new york is again the center of the universe so um yeah this place, like, definitely, I think Meadowburn, too, is just so magical. It's just, like, it's easy to get sucked into it. What's your cell phone policy? Do you just, like, see you're such so much nicer than me, but do you just let everyone, like, sort it out themselves and wait till their battery dies and they realize they don't have service? Or do you just let them, do they naturally come to a point where they are starting to act appropriate for the setting? <laughs> well, I don't know if there's protocol. There's some people who just, 
are still stuck in their phone and tied into, you know, work email and and whatnot. Um, I mean, I, my cell phone's on me all the time, mostly because people are always looking for me. But, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people intentionally kind of close it down for, like, the weekend that they're here. This is like the search for how to live life. That's what this is all about. It's an interesting thing. If you live in the country, then you don't get to see everyone that you know as often or whatever. Get out into the yeah. world as much. You don't get to make as much money, blah, blah, blah. You don't get to have hip young people around. If you live in the city, you don't get to experience the earth. And there's this fundamental feeling I have in my core that the most exciting thing going on on the face of the earth is the earth itself and so it's like if we have this window to be here is it more exciting that people are playing sports against each other or developing new technologies or coming up with incredible new ways to make bacon or is it like <laughs> that you know sunset sunrise best swim kayak birds all that stuff yeah and i i'm but not like a coon i'm not really uh i don't want to say man enough but i'm not actually like convicted enough to do anything about it um and oh, go live damn. someplace that's off the grid but i think there are also people on earth who actually find it way more interesting what's going on inside the lab and um you know good for them i guess right um, yeah. or they like making the deal or they like buying the real estate or they like buying and selling. And like, what well, that's what makes them tick. Um, I think I'm just sort of stuck in the middle with a hybrid of both. And so it, it, your life fascinates me in a way, just cause it's like, you are on the other side of a decision that I think a lot of people wish they had made, but didn't. Um, <laughs> but you still seem to have like the other thing you were saying, I, I realized my question was so stupid about like, do you see people you do see people, you see the people that are around there and you probably mm -hmm. end up having like a lot more relationships with people who are actually in front of your face. Even though I'm surrounded by, I don't know, let's say a hundred thousand people within five square miles. Yeah. Uh, um, I know less about them than you do about the guy who has the pickup truck down the road. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what too, is that, um, I think what this time has like given me is like this really special opportunity to uh, kind of like reconnect with a bunch of people from my past that live in the area. And it's partly because like I have the ability to host people and something interesting that, you know, a young family in Brooklyn wants to like escape to for the weekend. And um, so yeah, I think the interactions like that I've had, even though like I'm I'm here way out in the country most on my own most of the time, but when people come out, it's always like really solid quality time with you know sometimes it's someone I, who I haven't seen since college and like just got in touch with because I found out they lived in Brooklyn last year, you know, and um, also because it is a trek. Um, and the entertainment here is, you know, like floating in the ice pond, going on a walk, playing bocce ball. It's, it's like really interpersonal, interactive, um, good friend time that it's been like, I've had like a lot of really meaningful social connections because of Meadowburn, I think. And um, yeah, that's been, I feel really lucky for that. 
So if you had to give tips to somebody who was like considering doing it, what do you think are like the most? Im- if someone was going to come in and take your place, which I assume someone will, will at some point, mm-hmm. but if you were doing like that crossover interview and you wanted to give them like three tips from your three years living there, like what what do you think you would say? And not necessarily like, well, make it anything actually. Yeah, um, just as far as like living here in the country. If you, yeah, if you were sitting up on, like, yeah. a throne and you were some sort of, like, Gandhi character or, like, the uh-huh. da- Dalai Lama. <laughs> if you were the Dalai Lama, of, you're the you're the flower queen of Meadowburn. And uh-huh. so you're passing, you're passing the, the uh, crown, the tiara to the, or the, the leatherman and pouch to the next flower queen. What would you, what would you say? Um... Okay, well, there's a lot I would say, but specifically about the choice to, like, live here out out at Meadowburn, I think I would say, like, you know, I think it's, if it's a place that they plan on living long term, like, does the community feel right for them? And does what's happening in the local community feel exciting and stimulating? And do they jive with it? And for me, there's, places that I visit that I don't really know and I just get like really exciting kind of inspiring feelings from um I don't get that here I get it at Meadowburn like Meadowburn's my bubble but my like bubble of paradise but um in the local community it's never been a community that I saw like long-term future in um and maybe that goes back to like earth brings us to the east coast versus west coast thing um but i think that's one thing that's been really hard for me being here and one of the reasons that it has felt isolating it's just because like it's not they're not my people i guess like i found more of my people in the city than i have here and that's not because it's rural it, i think it's really just the community itself and and the region maybe um so i'd say it, it'd be really important that like the next person they're going to commit to a good chunk of time like feel it out and then I think you know it would have been um I think it's much easier with a partner you know I think having like this would be even a more incredible paradise if I was like here with the person of my dreams and could share it with someone every day um so I think that would be, you know, something that I could, I'd suggest <laughs> to someone else. And I think would help someone else in this situation too. Um, yeah, I'm not answering your question. I yeah, don't know. You're doing, yeah, you are. So let's talk about, <laughs> you definitely, and you're even bringing up a more interesting question, which is, okay, so let's just say you're whatever 28 you just moved to the city and you're single it's like okay Mm -hmm. here are my major options for meeting a girlfriend or a boyfriend um Mm -hmm. obviously the bar unfortunately number two (laughs) is like a mutual friends party number three is work um Mm -hmm. and then number four is like some if it's new york like a random run-in at like the hbo movie at bryant park on monday nights or something like Mm -hmm. that 
So what is the top four for the, <laughs> the same person in Meadowburn? Like, what are we like? Where would you where would you like take a shower, get ready to go, and be like, I might meet a guy tonight? Like, where when <laughs> when, when were you actually excited? Oh my god, that I don't think that's ever happened to me at Meadowburn. Um we're like going at going any place here. I've never been like, ooh, I might meet like a cute Warwick dude. Just it's it's never something that I've anticipated or expect to happen. Um, but you know, so at Meadowburn and this goes back centuries, is that a lot of people hook up with other people that work at Meadowburn and I mean, that happened with, as far as, like, the workers here. So that happened with um, several generations of, like, caretakers and maids often or gardeners and farmers' daughters. Um, tell us more. But, what, what was that? I said tell us more, farmers' daughters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's happened, like, for, God, the DeVries family. I think I mentioned to you Josh and Walter. Um, they've their family has been working here at Meadowburn for like uh, seven or eight generations, you know, and Walter met his wife here at Meadowburn. Um, his, God, just like, yeah, it's just like you could have a reality show on the relationships at Meadowburn. The, um, I've never really been a part of that, though. It's not really like. Oh, yeah, of course not. My of thing, course, I don't yeah, think. Not you. Not you. <laughs> not me, of course course not but yeah where would you like go out to meet someone so you you have to bank on like a cute person getting out of the like back of someone's car like some friend from some brooklyn couple is coming and like i mean maybe not even you i just mean you know it's like maybe it's just a boy's mind that thinks this way but like you have a before you're committed to someone you have Uh a like a schedule of potential events in the future where you could meet a cute girl Uh could be tennis lessons if you're a wasp it could (laughs) could be like riding bike bikes in the neighborhood it could be like your sister's birthday party but like there's got to be some like forums uh where the the wheels greased a little bit and i feel like that's what it sounds like that you want the volvo station wagon to have like one extra guy in wayfair sunglasses get out (laughs) Totally. Oh, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I've never, like, partaken in any of this here. And I think I, like, I pretty much have had, like, my blinders on um, in this region uh, as far as, like, meeting a dude goes in the country. And maybe that's good. So when I moved here, I wasn't single. And then um, that first summer, my relationship ended. And then, like, I was, like, fucking inundated by like self-righteous farmer dudes and maybe so that was like you know meeting people through work but just like it just wasn't like my type of of thing I guess um so this is something I haven't figured out if I knew the answer maybe I I would have some handsome dude by my side right now but um yeah, I mean, I think in general, I would imagine people like go to the music in the park and the barbecue at the farm next door and whatnot. Yeah, maybe it's because you knew you were going to get out at some point. I mean, the, yeah. there's so much subconscious power of just not wanting to go for things because you know that you don't want to like have to come to terms with ending them later. Um like maybe you knew after 
t- 10 minutes of, of being there, maybe somewhere deep inside your brain, you realize that A, you weren't interested in any of the guys that lived within 25 miles, and B, mm-hmm. you didn't want to bring any of them back to the West Coast, and that's where you were going to go, and that just like closed the discussion in your mind. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. So you went to the program at Longwood Garden, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like a one-year certification pro- pro- uh, process, whatever the word is. It's, no, it's a two-year wow. uh, master's degree. Whoa. Sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. It's so it's like full-on um, thesis-driven master's in science. Wow, an MS. Yeah. Yeah. I should have introduced you as such. So give us some – with your master's of science – uh-huh. Give us some um, tips. Uh, let's just say oh, yeah. you, you are someone who has been putting off gardening for five years. You're like, I really want to garden mm-hmm. this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a yard. You have a home. Maybe you even just have like, I don't know. I, I, let's not do the urban gardening thing. But like what are what are some just basic like learn to garden tips you can give us? Give us some insight. Yeah, I think you start small, and you start in, like, a container or a raised bed. And I would say get some plants that are really, like, proven to please. So whether it's flowers or the kinds of vegetables so that your experience will be um, good and fruitful and productive and as with as little frustration as possible. Right, to enthuse you to do more, like to, to, exactly. to help you along. Mm-hmm. And what do you know some of those proven winners when it comes to like small, small-scale gardening? Ooh, well, for flowers, I would say dahlias. Okay. Dahlias, and you can grow dahlias in containers. And they just like, well, so they're often annuals. You dig them up, or well, you can store the tubers over winter, but... Um, they grow. They can grow really fast and really big in one season, and just put out so many flowers. And they're like really gorgeous, colorful, big, bright flowers. And it's one of my favorites. All right. So I think that's like a really good pleaser. Um, yeah, go for the dahlia. And um, what else? What other like? And just go to your local garden store, like that, and they'll help you. Obviously, mm. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to sound stupid, yeah. but like. If you like, I teach me to garden. What should I do? I go ask them for dahlia bulbs. What are they? They're tubers. tubers. You ask for some tubers, yeah. Or sometimes they have little plants that are already started for you. You know what else I love? And actually, I like in my own pots in my own little garden behind my house. I like to do a bunch of containers and like coleus are so fun. It's a foliage plant. It's an annual, and they come in just like tons of cool colors and they grow really well and they mix together well and they're fantastic in pots. So if you want something ornamental, coleus is awesome. And then um, there's all of these really fun fragrant um, geraniums that have like scented fragrant leaves and those can be really fun too, especially like for pots on a, in a sunny spot. Um, but yeah, I'd say go to your garden store, find out what kind of container you want I like terracotta because I think they look cool, and as they age, they get kind of, like, mossy and funky looking. And then you want to get some really good soil, like some good potting soil, and you probably want to get some amendments to go in your potting soil. And 
great. If you're just doing like one pot or a few pots, like ask your your garden person what they'd recommend as far as the amendments. But what's really great is a little bit of steer manure in there. Of course. And We've all got that like, in the freezer. <laughs> yeah. And then some like fertile like slow release fertilizer that'll continue to feed your plant for a little time a little bit of time. But you don't want just the potting soil or else there's just like no real good nutrients just in potting soil. Where um, how and, do we know that steer manure is better than the alternative? Like uh what chicken manure? Or bowl manure. Guano. These are all really good. So just animal shit. Yeah, put some animal shit in there. And actually, they actually sell, like, small portions these days at the garden center. Well, you've just prompted me to do something that I've been meaning to do, um, which is not garden, but it is tell a story. And you're the perfect uh-huh. recipient because it's a, story about, <laughs> it's a story about the Pacific Northwest. It's oh. a Story about um, gardening in a way. It's a story about uh, fertilizer. So, um, and I don't think you've heard it before. But so, um, let's see. I would say in the in January of 2015, Anna and I moved into a bungalow. Here come the mowers to screw uh-uh. my to screw my audio up. That's okay. We're gonna they get it. <laughs> these guys get it done. Let's let's just describe what they have going on. They've got two push in front like mini brush hogs almost. Mm-hmm. Both Guatemalan, I think. Um, they get the entire yard done in like ten minutes. Wow. Uh, I guess there's a third guy with a weed whacker, but these I mean, these lawn care companies they've got this stuff down to the science. I just don't know how they all compete. There's so many of them. You see all these yeah. trailers and trucks. Do they like leave divots in your lawn and? Well, our yeah. lawn has some pre-existing divots, um, but I mean these things. These, this they they like it's been it's been very dry here, and the, I can just see these waves of like dust and pollen coming up and dirt. Whoa! And I just wonder, like, could between that and like the two-stroke oil of the mower, like these guys have got to be getting some pretty toxic shit in their lungs, right? Yeah, and their ears because they're just like around that crazy noise all day. I know, and one of the—I really mean, I guess awful. one guy has hearing protection, but I just wonder, like, should they be wearing a respirator? Hmm, probably. Yeah. So our we there's like ongoing drama with our lawn crew, and so we contract out lawnmowers, and it's probably kind of the same deal of what you guys have. It's just like a crew that comes in really fast. We have like five guys probably all at the same time. Um, with those ride-around mowers that they, like, stand up on. And, um, oh, it just drives me crazy because they they just want to get in and out as quick as possible. And so what it means is that there's, like, you know, they're taking these, like, really fast one-point turns and leaving one-point turn marks in the lawn. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't tell you how many fucking climbing roses they have weed-whacked in the garden. To the point where I have to, like, start putting out little flags on things I don't want them to weed whack. And then even with a flag, they'll still weed whack them. Um, but it's like this ongoing nightmare. And then they like blow clippings into our fountains. And so like every week I kind of have to like remind them, like be careful with this, be careful with that. Um, anyhow, my assistant, and I'm not like a thoroughly like finicky perfectionist 
who is ultimately the person who would, you know, has the power to fire them. And so I'm always, and also it's like my responsibility for the lawns look good. So I'm kind of like the bitch. And then my assistant is like the sweetest woman in the world. And she's always like saying hello and complimenting them. And then the other day she left popsicles on their truck while they were out mowing. And she said, she came to me, she's like, well, I have this theory that if we tell the lawnmowers, like, give them popsicles and tell them that they're doing a really good job and, and like, give them a lot of praise, that they're going to do a better job. And um, so uh, she gave them these popsicles, and then I got this text from them later, like, was that you guys that gave the popsicles? And I said, yeah, it was Kaylee. I said, oh, the girls are always so friendly. <laughs> I thought that was funny because we were kind of saying that I wasn't friendly. But um, anyhow, uh, I think it kind of worked. Like, I think it gave them, like, a little bit more pride in their lawn mowing. And um, anyhow, really a good balance for me. I can be such a, such a bee. Do you think it was the good cop, bad cop routine that did it? Or do you think it was all the good cop? Like they need to know that they they need to know that they're responsible to to somebody. Yeah, yeah, and that there's expectations, and that I'm I'm watching, and they can't get away with it. Um, yeah, I think it's a combo. I think it's good that they feel appreciated, and the thing is that I do appreciate them, but for the most part, they like piss me off so much that I like forget to. It, like, overshadows my appreciation for the fact that they're just, like, coming in and, you know, like you said, like, probably, like, fucking out their lungs and their hearing so that our lawn looks good. So Yeah, mowing lawns, be... mowing lawns to me is, like, a little weird. I'm not saying I'm against it, but I, why do we like a mowed lawn? Like, what, what in our brain makes us feel good? Because I'll look at other people's lawns and I'll be like, that looks like a nice lawn. And I know it's full of Scott's Turf Builder, which is just like Monsanto's yeah. best-selling product of fucking bullshit that's ruining the earth and ruining our economy. And yet the lawn looks great, and I'm somehow, like, drawn to thinking it's great. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of theories about this and theories that have been written about. And actually, if you're really interested, you should read Michael Pollan's second nature book and he has a whole chapter on lawns and it's fantastic you'll like never want to mow a lawn again but i think you know we like the lawns for two reasons they're like so it's a, a um symbol of social status and and like economic status you know if you can have a nice green lawn it means that these days that you're like middle class american whatever um and but then, like, it goes to, like, way back in the day for, like, you know, English estates and um, having really beautiful, big, fancy lawns and golf courses and whatnot. So it's just, like, total social status is what it's all kind of founded in. But then I think there's a difference. So that's, like, the, like, nice, fancy turf lawn. But then I think it's also really important, and this doesn't have to be, like, an actual mowed lawn, but, like, a meadow or, like, open green space, like, like simple green space, whether it's grass or a field or like a big carpet of moss or like just like a blanket of sword ferns or whatever it is, just having like sweeps of open green space is like, it's like gives you this like calming, it's like a little respite, you know? And if you were, if your whole landscape was to be 
crazy flowers all over the place, like that would be fantastic, but also like, you know, kind of constant stimulation. And I think contrasting that or contrasting other elements of a design landscape or just like a living environment, having simple, peaceful green swaths can do something for the psyche. I wonder if it has something to do with also, like, this is where we'll set our camp, like, in the olden days of, like, or even back to, you know, nomadic times. You can't, you know, you don't, yeah. you want, like, there's a flat piece of, of uh, well-watered, um, comfortable land where we can see all around us in case of totally. some sort of danger. Also, there are mm-hmm. probably uh, things to eat close by or mm-hmm. in there. And, you know, we can, like, easily get rid of the grass versus, like, cutting down trees and removing stumps or trying to move rocks that are on the side of a mountain or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, there's not, like, a rattlesnake hiding behind a log that's going to eat your baby as it plays. All right. So this is called – I'm trying to think if I say the name first. I don't think I'm going to. Okay. So so in January of 2015 – Anne and I moved into a bungalow in North Portland. Oh, just one last leaf blower to ruin the environment. <laughs> um, so, um, he's going now. Um, okay, so, so per, it, it was a purple house. It had a bunch of different weird trees and uh, garden elements in it that were completely dis- disorganized. I uh-huh. would say we couldn't say that it was tasteless because it had a fig tree and it had ro- huge rosemary bushes, and it had um, these beautiful European cherry trees and all this amazing stuff, peonies that we've talked about. But uh, it wasn't well-mended. It looked a little lazy, and there was, like, a, a fence in front made of old bicycle parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the house was cheap, and the house had a fence, and the house was cool. It had, like, a hand-tiled bathroom. And it was like had like weird tiling tilings of palm trees, and then it had like an indoor outdoor shower off the back, like almost a. I love it. Like a grotto that was all like hand tiled and had like a lot of lights in it, and actually had some mirrors in it, and I don't know what was going on there. Fantastic. Um. So we walk through it at night with the realtor, and it's cheap, and we know someone else is going to take it, and we want to get out of our apartment in downtown Portland because we've got a second dog. Tim the dog and so we write the guy a security deposit check that we, we you know that won't even clear unless we move some money around um, and we get the house and we move in mm-hmm. during that conversation with the guy he said there is one thing and we said what and he said well you might have seen that little house out back and it was like this little cob house and he's like there's a guy living in that cob house his name is Dan he's really nice but um, he, we've spoken to him. He's been living here for a long time. And we've agreed that we're going to let him live here until the end of January. And this might have been mm-hmm. December, actually. And we were going to move in January 1st. And so we were like, all right, you know, like, it's just part of the deal. This is kind of a wacky house. It's owned by this. We looked her up online, like this um, wedding videographer from New York who's like a hipster lesbian and also makes a lot of sort of like art like female inspired art um mm-hmm. so she's living in brooklyn we're living in portland she owns the house we're paying her cheap rent she's sort of out to lunch the realtor gives us all the information blah blah, blah. so we move in and so 
Long story long, this guy, Dan, is basically a hippie, and he's a little bit of a weird hippie, and he is um, living in this cob house that has a sink and has a heater and has a stove and has a bedroom upstairs, but it's really not like, I don't know, we don't really look back there, we don't really check it out much because it's the winter and there's nothing back there, and there's this guy who's been living there, and it's his space, and so we kind of do all of our business towards in the house itself and the front of the house. But we see him come and go and, you know, we make little side comments about it. And really, like, you don't really want another person living on your property if you're paying the rent unless it's someone you chose or unless it's someone that you've gone through a vetting process with. So we're kind of just counting the days down. But um, having said all this, the dogs love it. And every morning we let them out to go pee in the semi-fenced-in yard and they keep running back behind the cob house. They really like something back there. And you know dogs, they always are like interested in something someplace. And then they run back into the house when they're done and jump up on the bed and lick our faces and have fun with us. So that goes on for a while. And relationships or conversations with Dan are a little awkward and he, he, he kind of never needs them to end. So it's one of those situations where you're, <laughs> you're coming back from work or he's going to work. And anyways, he knocks on the door at one point um, because we had called the landlord and called the realtor and he had made us angry in some way. He had been um, either he had he had I know that he ended up staying past when he said he would. He was also using some stuff of ours. Like he may have been using the shower um, in the back and that was okay. But he, I don't know. So anyways, he ended up knocking on the door one day and he said, look, I, he, I opened the door. His eyes were like dark black and like white as saucers. Bearded guy wears the same outfit, little wool cap, very Pacific Northwest, drives a red Prius. <laughs> And he's like, I don't. Prius, I, I didn't. I wouldn't have thought that. Based on I know it's like a fancy car. It felt like he got it yeah. in an insurance settlement or something. And so, um, he says something to the effect of like, "Hey, I don't want to be on bad terms. I just want you to know that like this is my home and this is where I've been living." And he kind of gives me this guilt trip slash apology, which is really a passive aggressive way of saying I'm not sorry that I'm living here. This house got sold from under me, and this is my home, and I built the cob house, and I built the shower, and now I'm being asked to leave for nine years. But he says it in a completely different way. And mm -hmm. I end up saying to him, you know what, Dan? I respect you as a human on the face of the earth, but we agreed to live here, and our understanding was that you were going to be gone at this date, and you're still here, and this is not what we paid for. And I don't want you to have a bad time. I don't want you to be put out. But ultimately, like, there was a deal. And the deal was that you were going to leave. And it's really not fair that I'm put in the in the position of deciding whether or not you can stay. Because that's what had happened. They had yeah. asked if, if, us if it was okay if he stayed. So anyways, he's, he ends up moving out and all the little, you know, tribulations that went along with that. So he moves out. So he's gone. And I want to go look at the Cobb house because I've never seen it before. <laughs> and so I run out back and I open it and I open the door and it has, you know, it's like sort of moldy inside and um, it's got like, but it's cute. It's got some charm. I can't believe that this guy has been living there all this time. Um, and I see this little like saloon door towards the back and this place is tiny, right? I mean, this is, we're talking about like, like a tiny house before they were tiny houses. <laughs> and I open up the okay. sal I open up the saloon door um, and I look in and all of a sudden I'm like, well, where's the toilet? 
there's no toilet in here. Oh, no. And so um, I start asking myself, okay, um, interesting. And I text Dan, and I'm sorry I paused there a little bit. Um, let me see. I'm trying to find the – there's some good emails here. <laughs> um, so, anyways, I, call, I text Dan because I have his number at that point. And I said, hey, Dan – uh, just went into the cop house. Looks great. No toilet. And he came back and said, um, oh, well, here we go. I'm just going to read this and we're almost out okay. of time. I know, but you're, this, this does have a good ending. Yeah, no, I like this. Hi, Leslie. <clears throat> this is me to my landlord. So I asked Dan today about where the composting toilet was being emptied. He had a comp. I, I just blew the whole thing. He had a composting toilet. And he sent oh, me, mm-hmm. he sent me a link saying, he said, I used a composting toilet and all of a sudden it clicked to me that the two huge piles of shit, literally oh, no. behind the cob house that the dogs had been running out to and eating every morning were, the, were, oh, no. were eight years of this guy's shit. And he said Gosh. to me, and I wish that I had it on my phone, but he said, the stuff on the left is ready, and the stuff <laughs> on the right probably needs a few more months. Oh, and no. then he sent me a link to this humanure like pamphlet, and he said, "This is how uh, this is. Uh, this has everything you want to know about this." Oh, damn. So this is my email to my um, landlord, which, as I remember, is entertaining, and then we can just wrap this up. Hi, Leslie. So I asked Dan today about where the composting toilet was being emptied, and it became clear that the two piles behind the house are humanure in various stages of decay. He said that one side was, quote, ready, and the other side needed, quote, about a year. This is obviously an unforeseen and somewhat sensitive topic all around, but I just wanted to touch base with you about it and also mention the condition of the yard in general. First, on the humanure, our dogs have been eating it. Not, not that cool for us. I've never really had a situation where human waste was part of the yard package. I would prefer to just have it completely removed from the property. Which leads me to the yard. Basically, we assumed, not that we should have made any assumptions, that much of the clutter, stuff, and trash around the yard was Dan's. Or we didn't think of dealing it until Dan left? I don't know why we thought he would have so much stuff, but it puts us in sort of a weird position. We can live in the house and not do anything about the condition of the yard, fence, basement, shed, and trash area until we move out. We can clean up this stuff a little bit at a time and take it to the dump etc but this costs time and money basically if we own the house we'd be doing all of this with gusto the fact that we don't means it feels like we could be put in a year of work and find out that you're moving in etc or that we're moving on is there a way we could monetize the cleanup i'm not mad about the humanure but i don't want it in the yard and i don't want to clean it up without compensation Makes sense? Wow, I was really, I must have really needed money. The, bo- <laughs> the bowling balls, old paintings, old storm windows, random planners, etc. also basically fall in the same category. 
Although the dogs aren't eating them because they aren't human feces. Let us know, Alex and Anna. Oh, that's funny. So that was the story of the human error for you, Quill. There's a little gardening at home. So did you end up cleaning it up, or did she come clean it for you? She had a crew. Speaking of Guatemalans with with lawn care equipment, she had a crew of guys that came and with with sledgehammers, with rakes, with shovels, and did. And he had built a pizza oven too. But it was like it was this classic situation of to me it was classic Portland hippie, which mm-hmm. is and real hippie, not like you know new Portland rich moving from California. He had made this pizza oven in, you know, 1993 uh, with some buddies with some weed and a case of beer. And after reading a book or going to some seminar someplace in the San Juan Islands and um, he had built his pizza oven. and It was cool, but he had done nothing to protect it to weather like uh, it yeah. like didn't it, it. The roof had had um, rotted out because of all the water. He hadn't, like, taken any sort of resealant or anything. So when you open the pizza oven, it had a bunch of brush and maybe some dead mice and, like, uh-huh. some corroding brick on it. And it was just kind of like – and the, the cop house was a piece of shit, honestly. In Dan's, in Dan's defense, I don't get why it's any grosser. Like, we slaughter cows, eat cows, and take shits and, like, have to send it down the septic tube or whatever, the sewer tube to get, you know, full of bleach and – disgusting chemicals and yet we'll use cow shit on our plants that we eat so i don't get like i know that it's not a full circle like i couldn't connect it all on a whiteboard but why is (laughs) why is human shit any grosser than all the other animal shit that's that is tangentially in our food yeah yeah i guess it all depends on that person's diet oh god yeah all right well someone would just Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, go, go, go. I mean, if someone was just, like, on a fast food, like, junk food diet and, like, popping pills all the time, you probably wouldn't want to use their shit on your garden. I did not want to use Dan's shit on his garden, (laughs) on my garden, on anyone's garden. Dan, honestly... I feel like Dan was a great representation of someone who, when when all when it was all said and done, was just an asshole. And people like that never get called assholes. But there's many different kind of assholes in the world, and I feel like he was one of them. Yeah, sounds like it. All right, well, Quill, thank you Damn. so much for doing this. I hope that you found it fun and entertaining, and I feel like you should uh, be proud of your performance, and you should serve yourself a oh, beer. Oh, thanks, man. And, oh, thanks. And um, I don't know. I hope it wasn't a waste of your time. We had fun listening to Oh, no. To it was so much fun. And um, I'll do it again with you anytime. I just hope that I was, like, able to give, like, some interesting nugget. You're, you're exceptional. You're great. Um, <laughs> you weren't exceptional. That's an overstatement. You were great. Um, and <laughs> um, I think as you're gardening and as you're going through the rest of the summer, and I'll see you in a few weeks, like, if you think of things you want to talk about, that's the thing. It's like... There's so oh, many. Oh, on landline? Yeah, on landline. Yeah, like if you yeah, to, yeah. If you want to do sure. 15 minutes and we'll have like a clip show where we get a bunch of different people and you want to do 15 minutes on what not to do with your garden or if you are inspired to mention anything um, or we can just check in with you. 
We could come up with a bit. I mean, you're going to keep gardening. We could come up with a seasonal bit where you get oh, on, we get you on, on January 15th and you say it's a month till Valentine's Day. Let's start brainstorming the most ethical, sustainable, fun way to keep your money local and get beautiful foliage for your, for your beloved. And we could, you know, Love do things it. like that. So yeah, where to find the best naked stick. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Okay. And you are going to miss New Jersey, even though you don't think you I am. There's so much I'm going to miss. It's it's so true. I feel very torn about it. Well, thanks for being on Landline, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, talk to you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Joy. Oh, shit.